If you have a Bible, if you could open up to uh, Acts chapter 5. We've been studying through the book of Acts for the last uh, number of weeks. We're going to keep right on going. There's a couple of books that I wanted to uh, just recommend to you real quick on the front end here. Uh, One of them is More Than a Carpenter. This is a great little book that uh, talks about different uh, aspects of who Jesus is and why we could know uh, with, with a great deal of confidence that, uh, that he's true and real and that the Bible is, is valid. We have a bunch of these uh, that I had left over from a while ago, and so I put some out on the welcome bar. So if you want one of those... Uh, you got to run to get out there because there's not that many left. The other one uh, that there's a few more of out there is this one called um, uh, The Creation Answers Book. And this is a good one. This is one that has more to do with all of those like questions that we have about the Genesis account and, uh, and, and creation and uh, all kinds of random, like who was Cain's wife and uh, you know, just different, different things like that. Uh, and so uh, there's some extras of those out there. And then I don't have extras of this one, but this one's just called The Case for Christ, and it's awesome. Now a major motion picture, right? So if you go on Netflix, you could watch the movie if you don't like to read. Uh, I don't have any extras of this. This one's mine. So you can come up here and look at it. <laughs> Library has some. Yeah, right. Good. So ex- excellent book. Uh, I have this, um, this barber that I've talked about before. I've mentioned a good guy. I love him. I've been going to him since I was tiny, Uh, but just a complete atheist, like a total complete atheist, which is weird because I don't really, I don't really meet a lot of like full on. I just don't believe that there's any God at all. That's kind of odd. Like a lot, most people will say that they believe in some kind of God. They believe that there's some kind of creator. Most people are, are more on the agnostic side, right? Which is, I, I believe there's probably a God. I just don't know who he is or what he's like or, or, or how to, how to c- connect with him. So, so having somebody who really is just completely, nope, when you die, that's it, you're done, there's nothing after that, uh, is odd. And I, I don't normally talk about religion with my barber, uh, but every now and then it comes up, and it, and it has the last few times I've gone in. And uh, he, he's, he's told me that, that his big hang-up is when he was young, he went to church, and they told him about uh, Noah's Ark, and he was just like, nope, that couldn't happen. There's no way they could get all those animals on a boat. You would need a boat the size of California to fit all the animals on it, he said. And I'm like, well, first of all, it was probably a pretty big boat. But, but second, it wasn't all of the animals. It was just two of every kind. It wouldn't even be that hard to do. Like, I don't know if that should be the thing that should be the hang-up for you. Uh, and then I said, okay, but you got to, like, okay, whatever hang-ups you have about, about like Noah's Ark, you've got to at least be willing to concede that there's a creator. I mean, come on, like the amount of intelligence that's encoded in our DNA, like there's no way statistically, scientifically, that that could just evolve out of nothing. That couldn't happen. Like you've got to admit that somebody is the author of intelligent life. And, and, and that, that, that all of this, like everything that we have, all came from nothing. It all just spontaneously happened out of nothing. That's not scientific. Like that is the opposite of science. That's not, that, that's not logical. There's no way. There has to have been some kind of creator back there. I'm just trying to get him to at least concede that, yeah, okay, there's probably some kind of, of intelligent design out there. Uh, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't do it. I said, I, you know what? I just don't have as much faith as you. 
And he was like, ah, what are you talking about? I don't have faith. I'm like, yeah, you do. Like, you were placing your, your belief, your eternity, your everything on a set of beliefs that you're holding to. Uh, and to me, they just seem really far-fetched. I don't think I could believe what you believe in. I just don't have that much faith, that much blind faith. But believing that there is a creator who made everything that we see and who is the author of intelligent life and and who communicated in some way with his creation is way easier for me to believe. It requires less faith, I think, because it's a belief that is founded on better evidence. No, no, no. For sure, Christianity requires faith. The Bible talks a ton about the crucial role that faith plays in our lives. But the kind of faith that the Bible's talking to is really more akin to trust. Just trusting in God. It's, it's really more about, about confidence in God. About, about obedience to God. And our faith is not blind. We don't have this, this groundless faith. It's not a dumb faith. It's not an unscientific, unintellectual faith. It isn't a faith that's devoid of, of evidence. Our faith is built on some pretty solid evidence for the truth claims that, that are contained in God's Word. There's, there's proof that we can believe in and that we can share with others. Really, the, one of the big reasons why the Gospels were written was to communicate this truth of who Jesus was and what He accomplished and what that means for us so that we would get it and we would understand it and we would see all, all of the evidence that ties together with all that God was saying in, in the Old Testament and, and believe John, near the end of his gospel, he writes, He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you also may believe. And then in, in John 20, he says, uh, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He's saying, The whole reason why I'm writing this. The whole reason why I'm telling you this, that that is true, and I know it's true, is so that you will believe. His his whole reason was for, for writing was to provide some evidence to his readers. Evidence that points to the reality that Jesus is God in the flesh. And that Jesus really did suffer and die. And He really did rise from the dead. And that He really has paid for our sins. And, and Luke's reason for writing Acts is, is very similar. He's writing, at least in part, to present evidence for the claims made by Jesus. To show the, the reality and the power of the working of, of God. To provide some, some sensible, logical, reasonable proofs that the Gospel is true. If you remember back in Acts chapter 1, you want to flip a couple pages over there? Verse 3, 
talks about Jesus uh, appearing to his disciples, and he says to these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus himself appeared and offered up all of these different proofs, evidences that it was, was really him and that he was alive. And that he really was that this, this promised Savior from God. And so what I, what I want to do today uh, is, is look uh, in a, a little bit more of a big picture way at some of the different ways that Luke presents us with evidence for the truth of the Gospel here in, in Acts. The first thing, right off the bat, we have all of these eyewitness accounts, right? I mean, that's one of the most convincing evidences for the truth of the gospel is all of the eyewitness testimony. And, and that is, that is a, a, a huge amount of evidence. That is an important thing. Someone who will testify to what they have seen and what they have heard firsthand is really solid evidence. And Jesus, Jesus tells them, all right, I've given you all these convincing proofs. And now what you're going to do is go and be witnesses. You're going to go out there and be my witnesses everywhere you go. And they do. They do all throughout the book of Acts. We see them really plainly say, here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's done. We saw it. We're eyewitnesses. Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Acts 3.15, you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Acts 5.32, we're witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Acts 10.39, we are witnesses of all the things He did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross. So the testimony that we have is that Jesus was put to death, that God raised Him back to life, and we have that as eyewitness accounts from these men who were there. Paul corroborates their story, right? Over in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's explaining the, the heart of the gospel and the importance of the gospel. Here's what he says. He says, I, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. It's hard to get a much more convincing testimony than that. And Paul lays the whole argument out. Jesus died actually truly died. He didn't just seem to be dead. Didn't just pass out. He was dead. And he was, and he was buried. And he rose from the dead. Just like the Scriptures said. Just like God said. Again, that's a evidence to the, the reality and the truth of this Gospel. God said this was going to happen. And it did. And then he appeared to Cephas, to Peter. 
And then to the 12, remember, remember that, remember that one time where he showed up in the room where the doors were closed and, and Thomas, who had previously said, I don't believe you guys who say you've seen Jesus. Unless I get to put my fingers in the holes, I ain't going to believe. And so Jesus shows up and says, all right, Thomas, here you go. And doubting Thomas stops being doubting Thomas that day and becomes firmly believing Thomas. And Jesus appeared to over 500 others, Paul says. Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Go ask them. They'll tell you what they've seen also. And then he appeared to James, his brother, who was kind of a skeptic. But he's, he's not unsure anymore. And then Paul says he appeared to me when I was a flat-out enemy of Jesus, when I was persecuting Jesus, he appeared to me and changed my mind and my heart in an instant. The weight of the eyewitness evidence is huge. It might have been possible for a few people to concoct a story about Jesus resurrecting. Although, although again, even Jesus' own disciples, His own followers didn't fully believe it until they saw it. But then to get 500 plus other people in on it, there's no, there's no way. Just the eyewitness account alone is sufficient evidence. But there's more. Ten times in Acts, Luke mentions these signs and wonders. And we see these miracles happening by the apostles all throughout it. The miracles are a further proof of the fact that, that God is with them and that their testimony is true. There's a reason that the Bible r- refers to the apostles performing signs. There's, there's a reason why it uses that word signs. A sign is something that, that points to something else, right? That identifies something. And in this case, it, it identifies the apostles as being actually sent from God. Their hand, the hand of God is, is on them. Their story is not just something they made up, but it's, it's confirmed as truth through the powerful working of Almighty God. I mentioned it a few weeks ago, but remember John the Baptist is locked up. He's unsure about Jesus. Is he really the Messiah? Is there going to be someone else? Sends a message asking that question. Jesus, are are you the one? And Jesus' answer, his evidence, his validation for the fact that he is the promised Messiah. He says the blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel proclaimed to them. He says these, these miracles are a sign and evidence that, that God's working. They're, they're God's way of, of bearing witness to, to the fact that He's there. It's, it's God's way of saying, I want you to see and to, and to believe what I'm doing. Because, because, listen, if there is, there is a God, right? If there really is this all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God who created uh, everything, then He should have no problem in working uh, in ways that are, that are supernatural, right? That are, that are outside of, of the norm. Should have no problem showing evidence that He's there. 
The signs that Jesus did and the miracles that the apostles performed are are God's way of testifying that He's present. It's God's way of giving us proof. So we have the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And through the miracles, we have the testimony of God. The author of Hebrews says this. Hebrews 2, verse 3, he says, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, by Jesus, confirmed by those who heard it, the the apostles, God also testified. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. I don't, I don't find it that hard to believe the testimony of the apostles. And I, I don't find it hard to believe that God would, would work these miracles through them. When I, when I read uh, the Gospel accounts and Acts, I, I'm amazed at how awesome our God is. It, it's enough evidence for me to believe. But I can understand why uh, some people, you know, thousands of years later, have a hard time believing. I mean, at this point in history, it's easy for people like my barber to just write off what the Bible says as, as, as superstition. It's just fables. Bible's not real, didn't really happen, it's not reliable. Even though, like, even though the weight of evidence for the, the historicity of the events that took place in the Bible is, is huge, that it's been uh, corroborated by, uh, by uh, external historians and, and archaeologists. Even though we have thousands of these manuscripts of, uh, of uh, the, the books of the Bible that have been preserved through thousands of years. I mean, there's, there's so much evidence for the historical truth of the Bible, of the life and history of Jesus. But still, I can understand why there would still be skeptics who don't believe that it's true. But what I don't understand, what I don't get, is how the Jewish leaders here in Acts, during this, this period of time when the apostles are, are preaching all about what Jesus has done, how they could refuse to believe, how they could miss it. How do they, seeing firsthand, right there in front of them, these miracles, how do they still have such hard hearts and blind eyes? I don't get it. Look at Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 14. All the more believers... In the Lord, uh, multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they're all being healed. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Man, imagine that picture. Like you have a, a road that's just lined with people who are 
hurting and suffering and sick and broken and bleeding and crying out in pain. And as the apostles walk down that road, those people are changed. Right? They're healed. They're made whole. Uh, the, the crying turns into shouts of praise to God who has healed them. The, these, these leaders, these high priests and Sadducees saw that happening. And, and instead of praising God for what He was doing, they're jealous because everybody likes the apostles better and they don't like us anymore. So they arrest him. They arrest the apostles again. First time they arrested Peter and, and John when they healed the lame man. This time it says all 12 of them are tossed into jail. And I think sometimes when we read this, we don't understand how bad this is or the weight of it uh, because like, we have our, our like American uh, understanding of things. But these, these guys have been arrested and imprisoned by people who have the desire to kill them and the ability to do it. They have the ability to inflict real harm on them. In chapter 5, it ends with them being flogged, right? Brutally beaten in the the way that Jesus was right before His crucifixion. Chapter 7 ends with Stephen being stoned to death. I think another evidence for the truth of the Gospel message that they're proclaiming is their willingness to suffer and die for that message. These apostles believed with all of their hearts in what they had seen and heard. They were absolutely convinced. And they haven't always been convinced. Again, during Jesus' ministry, James is a huge skeptic. After the crucifixion, all of them scatter. Thomas has his doubts, right? There is real frustration and fear and sadness and confusion on the part of all of these apostles. But something changed that. Like something changed them from being these kind of weak, anxious men into absolute confident warriors. And I think seeing Jesus raised from the dead is the only thing that could do that. They are so completely sure of what they have seen and heard. They are more than happy to suffer and die to proclaim it. The the threats of punishment have no effect on them at all. In fact, because Jesus told them that they were going to be persecuted, Jesus told them that they're not going to treat you any better than they treated me. Like They knew ahead of time that this kind of persecution was going to happen. Because of that, when they are persecuted, instead of it causing them to, to be afraid or to stop or to shrink away, they rejoice, right? They love it. If you skip all the way down uh, to chapter 5, verse 40 in Acts, they flogged them, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. They went away after this brutal beating. We're all all bloody and in pain. They went away rejoicing. That is weird, right? In the the book, They're More Than a Carpenter, Josh McDowell asks the question, who would die for a lie? 
Someone might. Someone might die for a lie. But only if they believe, firmly, truly believe with all their hearts that that lie is the truth. The actions and attitudes of the apostles shows that they believe with all their heart in what they are proclaiming. So, so the apostles, they're, they're arrested again. Uh, and in the middle of the night, an angel comes and, and breaks them out of prison. Tells them to go back to the temple courts and keep preaching about Jesus. At, at this point, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if we have enough evidence in, in the Bible to know if angels have a sense of humor, but this seems kind of like a prank, right? Like, oh, this is going to be great. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to bust them all out of prison, and then we're going to tell them, we want you to go right back to the place where you were arrested, where you were preaching, and keep preaching. This is going to be great. And then we'll wait until the, all the Jewish leaders come back in the morning, and we're just going to laugh. It's going to be awesome. So they do that, and they go back out, and they're preaching, and the next morning the Jewish leaders come in, and they assemble, and they're getting all settled in, and they, all right, bring, bring the prisoners in. They're not there. All right, this, like the prison doors are locked, the guards are still out front. Somehow, 12 guys slipped past, and they're not, we don't know where they are. Uh, they find the apostles out teaching. And they uh, very carefully, at this point, arrest them again. Bring them in for questioning. Uh, look at verse 28. He said to them, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in His name. And yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Oh, interesting, right? All right, let's flash back a little bit to Matthew 27 where Pilate has already like, pronounced Jesus innocent a bunch of times, tried to get him freed, but they keep shouting, nope, we, we want him dead. And so Pilate washes his hands and says, all right, I'm done, I'm out of this, I am innocent of this man's blood, it's on you, it's your responsibility. How, how do the Jews respond to that? They say, let, let his blood be on us and on our children. They must have forgot saying that. Because <laughs> here, they're like, why are you trying to make us guilty? Well, you said. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. He's the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, through all the miracles that have been performed, God has been a witness to these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. I think, I think the boldness of the apostles as they're proclaiming this gospel message is another evidence of the truth of it. Just like the last time when they were arrested, they all speak just a, a simple, clear, convicting, irrefutable truth about who Jesus is. And, and they, the, the Jewish leaders, they don't even try to deny what the apostles say. They are convicted. 
cut to the heart. But rather than that conviction leading to repentance like it's supposed to, like it should have, because their hearts are so hard, their fingers are plugged in their ears, they refuse to hear, they refuse to repent, and instead it just makes them angry. They, they're, they're so filled with rage. They just, they just want control. They just want things their own way. And with their eyes closed and ears in their finger, they're, they're just screaming as loud as they can. You ever, have you ever seen that? Have you ever experienced anybody? Like, just watch the news. You'll see it. It'll be there. The, the rescue for the apostles comes from kind of an unlikely place. They, they were, they were going to be killed. Like, they, they were toast at this point. But the, the guy who rescues them is one of the Pharisees, one of these Pharisees that does not seem to be as controlled by emotion, who has a little bit more wisdom and rationality. Look what he says in verse 34. Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council, gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Then he said, men of Israel, take care what you purpose to do with these men. Some time ago, uh, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody group of about 400 men joined up with him. He was killed. All who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it'll be overthrown. But if it's of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found fighting against God. I think one of the best evidence for the truth of the gospel is presented by Gamaliel here, and it's the success of their mission. Gamaliel had been around long enough to see a bunch of different uprisings, political, uh, like fake messiahs who said that they were the one. He'd seen a lot of them, and he gives a couple of examples here. Each time somebody rises up and has a little following, as soon as their leaders kill, the rest of them scatter, and it's nothing. Just stop paying attention to it. Just ignore it, and it'll go away. And I think he was convinced. I think he really believed that they would just go away. That if they just stopped worrying about it so much that it would disperse like the other ones had. But his, his pragmatic advice carries a lot of truth here. If this is a man thing, it'll fail. But if, if, if this really is from God, you're not going to stop it. You're not going to stop them. You're not going to overthrow or undo what they're trying to do. If this is from God, you're just going to find yourself fighting against God. And you would think, they, they would have realized at this point that they were already fighting against God, right? How else would you explain how all 12 of them broke out of prison the night before? You're already fighting against God. The apostles... And all of the believers in this early stage in the church 
are going to face all kinds of persecution. They're going to be attacked. They're going to be scattered. And every time that they face persecution, the result is the gospel spreads. Right? The church gets bigger. Doesn't make it smaller. Makes it bigger. As, they, as they're scattered out to different cities and different countries, the gospel goes with them and it's proclaimed everywhere they go and people believe and like a wildfire, that gospel radiates out. Changing hearts and saving the lost and spreading even more. And we'll see that as we continue to process through the book of Acts just how much it spreads Because God was with them and there's power in the gospel and there's power in the name of Jesus. This this message of hope and life that we have staked our eternity on is true. And it is beautiful. And it needs to be shared. We need to keep sharing this gospel message that Jesus has suffered and died and risen again and forgiven us all our sins everywhere that we go. And the same God who granted success to the apostles and the early church as it spread will grant us success and go before us as we go and share that gospel message with people He's put in our lives. The weight of evidence for the gospel is overwhelming to me. I don't need any more proof to believe it. But perhaps the, the greatest proof that I've had is the work that God has done in my life, in my heart, the change that He's brought about in me. And my guess is that most of you have a testimony that could talk about how God has changed you, how He's worked a miracle in your life, how you know without a shadow of a doubt that He's true and that it's real because of what He's done for you. Go share that story with people who need to hear it. God, I thank You so much for Your Word and how it is reasonable and true and logical. How we can believe it and trust it. Place our confidence in You. Thank You that, that our faith isn't a blind faith. You are a God who has shown Himself to us. You've revealed Yourself. You've communicated to us. You've desired to have this relationship with the people that You've created. And even though sin has separated us from You, God, You found a way to bring us back. To adopt us as Your children and to save us and to seal us and to make us Your own through Jesus Christ. We recognize just how important, how transforming that message of Jesus is. Help us with with the same level of confidence and boldness to go out from this place and to tell others about what Jesus has done for them. And God, may You open blind eyes and bring to life dead, cold hearts all for your glory and honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.